Welcome to In Parallel, an offshoot of the OnScript podcast, in which we explore the connections between biblical and contemporary poetry. I'm your host, Brent Strawn. I'm a biblical scholar and theologian. I teach at Duke University, where I am professor of Old Testament and professor of law. While a third, maybe more of the Old Testament is poetic in form, one may well wonder how pertinent that last item, law, is to poetry, and vice versa. Law seems so, well, prosaic, doesn't it? So decidedly non-poetic. But then again, there is something called poetic justice. Furthermore, poetry often worries about strict metrical considerations, what the poet Mary Oliver called the rules of the dance. As a result, poetry is deeply concerned with matters of form and order, even boundaries, where one thing leaves off and another begins, topics that law, too, also treats in its own way. Law has, in fact, occasionally been the subject of poetry, as in Carl Sandburg's poem, The Lawyers Know Too Much, where lawyers don't fare too well, or W.H. Auden's Law Like Love. In the case of the Bible, there is the regal, even cosmological Psalm 19, which celebrates God's law, not to mention the massive, dare one say, a wee bit overwrought, Psalm 119, which is the longest in the Psalter at 176 verses, all of which laud the Lord's good and perfect Torah. On a much smaller scale, legal matters figure into the pithy maxim of Proverbs 17.15, which states, Judging the righteous wicked and the wicked righteous, the Lord detests both of these. Now, that proverb seems worthy of memorization by any lawyer in training or in practice. Poetry, where legal matters play a role, perhaps small but not unimportant, poetry that is concerned with order and boundaries, especially endings, all of that and more applies to the biblical poem to be considered in this episode, Psalm 137, which I am calling a poem with one doozy of a last line. Before getting to the psalm and its last line, perhaps we should step back a bit to think about the construction of poetry. Every poem has to begin somewhere, and so every poem does, whether at the beginning of the matter or in medias race, in the middle of things. That seems obvious enough, but with the exception of very long epic or dramatic poetry, most poems, at least of the lyric variety, are quite short, and so the question of where and how to end a poem becomes particularly important. Form and meter often help with that. The traditional sonnet has 14 lines, for example, and acrostic poetry needs to spell out its word or phrase, or if it's an alphabetic acrostic, get through the whole alphabet, and so on and so forth. But in less structured poetry, appropriate endings are achieved in different ways. Poets often conclude by varying something, 
a prior pattern is broken, for instance, even if only slightly, but in some noticeable way. This signals to the reader that things are coming to an end and have indeed now reached that end. The poem is finished. Sometimes the effect is achieved instead by a particularly memorable last line, one that arrests the reader, so much so that it may require a reconsideration or reanalysis of the entire poem. A contemporary example of this type of ending is found in a poem by John Savoy entitled Trimmed and Burning. Here's the poem. It isn't that I have carried a torch, but I confess to having sheltered a flame. The shrewder thing by far would have been to let it die, even to snuff it by one's own hand. Just a lick of the fingers, gentle pinch, quick hiss, and one last curl of smoke. But I have let it burn, because it is holy. Like the flame within red glass that glows through the long, empty hours, that flares through the thronging mass, that flickers with the prayers of the few seeking souls who sit or kneel, face enfolded in hands, or eyes drifting among the dim heights, then staring straight ahead as if they thought to see God, with only the flame to promise that even in absence there is presence. And loneliness is one measure of love. Yes, that is the kind of flame I have sheltered, only that mine burns black. With that last phrase, only that mine burns black, the poem ends. But in some ways, this ending is also where the poem or at least the poem's interpretation, truly begins. What is this black flame that Savoy has sheltered? Flames of fire do not normally burn black. In fact, they never do. So obviously this is a metaphorical flame. But what is the significance of its black color, especially when this flame is contrasted with the earlier flames mentioned in the poem, like the one within red glass that glows and flares and flickers in what appears to be a massive cathedral? While possible answers to this question are several, it suffices for now to say that Savoy's final line forces us to go back to the start of his poem and read it again, even more closely this time, looking for clues and hints that might cast some light on this image and the poem as a whole. Such is the power of a last line. Psalm 137 also has a very powerful last line. Here's the psalm in the Common English Bible. Alongside Babylon's streams, there we sat down, crying, because we remembered Zion. We hung our lyres up in the trees there, because that's where our captors asked us to sing. Our tormentors requested songs of joy. Sing us a song about Zion, they said. But how could we possibly sing the Lord's song on foreign soil? 
Jerusalem, if I forget you, let my strong hand wither. Let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I don't remember you, if I don't make Jerusalem my greatest joy. Lord, remember what the Edomites did on Jerusalem's dark day. Rip it down, rip it down, all the way to its foundations, they yelled. Daughter Babylon, you destroyer, a blessing on the one who pays you back the very deed you did to us, a blessing on the one who seizes your children and smashes them against the rock. And smashes them against the rock. Yes, that is one doozy of a last line, all right. Quite famous, or perhaps more accurately, rather infamous. This final line has given Psalm 137 a notorious reputation in Scripture with its image of baby bashing often known to people, whether they read the Bible a lot or very little, and not infrequently cited by people, in paraphrase at least, as a kind of stand-in for all that's wrong with biblical ethics so ancient and uncivilized, or so they seem to be. At least three things should be said in response to this sentiment commonly heard among the faithful, let alone among foes of faith. The first is that, contrary to expectation, Psalm 137 has actually enjoyed a good amount of fame through the years, not just infamy, because it has inspired many hymns and songs, including, for example, On the Willows in the play Godspell. Well, perhaps I should be a bit more precise. The first half, or two-thirds of this psalm, have inspired many songs and hymns. The last bit, mm, not so much. The first part of the psalm is full of grief and sorrow over the destruction of Jerusalem and the subsequent forced migration to Babylon. The imagery here is powerful and plaintive, moving and heart-wrenching. It isn't surprising, therefore, to find that many people have found in this psalm, or at least in this particular section of it, an inspired and inspiring poem. The second thing to say in response to critical assessments of Psalm 137 is that when it comes to poetry, well, paraphrase simply won't do. So while the sentiment of Psalm 137's last line is sometimes bandied about with disdain. It is also often the case that it is bandied about inaccurately. But poetry can never be fully captured through paraphrase. Instead, poems must simply be recited. And so it simply won't do to paraphrase Psalm 137 or its final line, as many are wont to do, by saying things like, well, the psalm encourages us to bash babies' heads in, or that the psalm says that's what God wants, or similar such things, because Psalm 137 says nothing of the sort. The poet leaves God entirely out of the last line, in marked contrast to the part about the Edomites. The poet could have involved God in the strike against Babylon, but the poet didn't. 
And that is a very important observation. Neither does the poet enjoin the listening community to take justice into its own hands. This is no terrorist how-to manual, that is. It is instead a poem. A grief-stricken poem about unspeakable events caused by destruction and exile at the hands of a hostile power. Yes, the poet wants payback, but the poet is also quite restrained about all that, all things considered. The final doozy of a last line is, after all, a third-person, impersonal construction. If or when the action described there takes place, the one doing it will be deemed happy or blessed in some way. Well, yeah, but isn't that bad enough, someone might rightly ask. And that leads to the third thing that needs to be said. Yes, this is a doozy of a last line, difficult to stomach, to be sure, but it is not unlike Savoy's, only that mine burns black. The last line of Psalm 137, not unlike Savoy's final line, isn't just the end of the poem, though it is that. It's also the beginning of the poem, or at least its interpretation, because it forces us to go back to the start and think it through all over again. What is this poem about? What is it trying to communicate? And why does the grief at the start of the psalm end with this brutal final line? Because, to come back to where I began this episode, how a poem ends is typically quite purposeful. If so, that means that this last line is not an afterthought, but here by design. In fact, it may not be going too far to say that the poet had this line in mind from the get-go. That the emotional first section of the poem that sucks us in is driving from the beginning and ever since toward this doozy of a last line. If so, that changes some things. It forces us to go back and do some reanalysis, as with Trimmed and Burning. So, again, why does Savoy's flame burn black? Clearly, it has to do with some sort of loss, given the lines that even in absence there's presence and loneliness is one measure of love. Perhaps Savoy's present absence, his lonely trace of love, is due to a death, untimely or otherwise, with the resulting flame burning black like the color of the clothing so often worn at funerals. Or maybe the loss is not an actual death, but its metaphorical equivalent, still evoking a funeral in some fashion. Or maybe Savoy's dark flame is less about loss than unrequited love. Or perhaps it's something else altogether, a grudge maybe, or a vendetta, cherished, as if sacred, even though it would have been far better to snuff it out, a lick of the fingers, gentle pinch, quick hiss, and one last curl of smoke. All of these and still other options present themselves because Savoy's last line and his poem as a whole remains malleable, metaphorical, open-ended. By way of contrast, a number of the details in Psalm 137 seem a good bit more transparent. Indeed, this psalm is one of the few that can be dated with confidence since we know it must come after the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile. 
It is by Babylon's streams that the psalmist sits down and weeps, remembering a Jerusalem that was ripped down by enemies who gloated over what they did. The psalm evokes all of that with sufficient detail and in so doing sucks us in. We feel the sorrow of land loss, the anger and helplessness of being mocked by cruel tormentors, the pain of seeing our beloved home decimated. The psalmist can't seem to put any of this together in any meaningful way. Not yet, at any rate. The cut is too fresh, too deep. The poet cannot put together God's song with singing, especially singing in a foreign land. Not yet, at any rate. That's why the poet utters a self-curse, swearing to never forget Jerusalem, the poet's greatest joy. All of this is moving, even beautiful in the way sadness sometimes is, but readers must heed the poet's example. We, too, mustn't forget what the poet is talking about, Jerusalem, and specifically a Jerusalem ruined, racked, smoldering. The poet can't put together these most recent memories of the city with the earlier ones, and so all the poet can do is speak to God about it, asking first that God remember how the Edomites cheered the city's desolation. circumspect here, reticent even. The specific construction used with the Edomites, which woodenly could be translated as something like remember to, is not inherently negative. In fact, remembering to in Hebrew is often positive when it comes to God in the Bible. In other words, the poet could have said more and could have said far worse when it came to the Edomites. And that's quite remarkable because the poet is obviously so troubled and traumatized. The same judgment holds true, I think, for the final part of the poem about Babylon with its doozy of a last line. It, too, is circumspect, reticent even. It's important to recall how the poem eschews any reference to God in this part. It's as if the poet knows that it's risky, if not downright unwise, to invoke God's name with such passionate and disturbing statements. The fact that God is explicitly left out makes the language of blessing in the final line not quite right, despite so many English translations. The Hebrew word that is found twice at this point in the poem, ashrei, usually describes someone who's happy or fortunate, enviable even. Now, that's hard enough to make sense of in this context, but the point is simply that ashray is not necessarily nor a particularly overt religious sentiment. And then, finally, surprisingly, there's a bit of law to consider in this poem. Biblical Israel, like its neighbors throughout the ancient Near East, occasionally employed the talionic principle when it came to justice and punishment scenarios. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, yes, but no more than an eye. 
just one tooth. The punishment should fit the crime, that is, and fit it exactly. Far from vindictive, therefore, the lex talionis, as it is often called, guaranteed precise payback for the wrongdoing. No more, to be sure, but also no less. And that is exactly what the poet of Psalm 137 wants. The poem seems overloaded at the end with a heap of terms and redundant syntax, all of which stresses quite emphatically that the poet wants fully precise and therefore entirely fair payback, which is to say that the poet wants justice. And then the poet utters that final doozy of a last line. Is it possible that in this poem, which began as it did and ends as it does, with a nod and maybe more than that toward legal principles, is it possible that this poem reflects a poet who herself watched as a Babylonian soldier murdered her baby? If so, maybe that is why the poet hopes with such precision for such precise payback. And maybe that, too, is why this poem ends with The Rock. Not rocks, plural, you see, or just any old rock, but THE rock. That one dreadful rock that the psalmist simply can't get out of her head. Where she saw what she can never forget. If so, then this doozy of a last line really does require us to reread and reanalyze this psalm again. And then, perhaps, again. That, however, is another topic. And even though it is the very same psalm, that reanalysis makes Psalm 137 reread a poem for another time. Here again, then, is Psalm 137, this time from the Revised English Bible. By the rivers of Babylon we sat down and wept as we remembered Zion. On the willow trees there we hung up our lyres, for there those who had carried us captive asked us to sing them a song. Our captors called on us to be joyful. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand wither away. Let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, Lord, against the Edomites, the day when Jerusalem fell, how they shouted, down with it, down with it, down to its very foundations. Babylon, Babylon the destroyer, happy is he who repays you for what you did to us, happy is he who seizes your babes and dashes them against a rock. Thanks for listening. See you next time.
John Savoy's poem, Trimmed and Burning, appeared in Poetry Magazine in July 2003. It's used here with permission of the author.